Hey, AfterBuzz fans, thank you for checking out OJ Made in America episodes four and five. You're tuning into the destination for TV superfan discussion, AfterBuzz TV. And now, let the buzz begin. So we are at the finale, the end point, episodes four and five. Thank you for joining us, AfterBuzz fans. You are here to check out the recap of Made in America, episodes four and five, the ESPN 30 for 30. I am your host, well, one of your hosts, Jill Monroe. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, at Stiletto Jill. To my left is Gabriel. Hey, guys. As Jill said, I am Gabriel. You can find me on Twitter, at Double G on TV, and you will find me celebrating the Cavaliers 2016 NBA Championship. Oh. Okay. I'm Josh Rodriguez. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Josh underscore Rodriguez underscore and. I like LeBron, too, so I guess I'll be celebrating with Gabe. There we go. Okay. And you are the host, Jill. <laughs> One of you them. Lead. And you've been killing it. And I'm Michael Rippey, and you can find me on social media at Mike Rips. It's right here in the tool bar. Hey, guys. So, episodes four and five, they were very impactful, very different from the first three in that now we're into the heart of the trial where everyone usually feels like they pretty much know the story. We all mm-hmm. know the outcome. You know that OJ was voted not guilty. Did you hear about that? So, <laughs> really? Um, really? Wow. That's what happened. So we get to go back through the steps of the trial and see different viewpoints from the prosecution, from the defense, and their different strategies, and also how what they were putting out there lined up with the jurors' impressions. So um, let's start at the beginning. What was it about the trial, maybe this time, that you learned maybe with the evidence or whatever that you weren't quite aware of from before? Regarding the evidence, I guess I didn't realize just how careless the CSI team was as far as the glove. Um, Obviously became such a big focus and really one of the downfalls of the prosecution's case. But I think the mishandling of it, just the extent of it, you know, being young when I first saw it, I wasn't aware just how important CSI was, but when I watch it now, it's like, they really just dropped the ball on that one. Yeah, I have to agree with Gabe. I'm actually pretty surprised at how much the prosecution messed up in a lot of cases. And not only that, just, I didn't, I wasn't aware of, like, um, Ron Ship, like, Mark, Mark Furman and how the defense took those people on and, you know, destroyed their character and made a stronger case for them. I, I didn't really know anything about that. Yeah, I would agree with both of those points. The the Ron Ship thing about uh, kind of how he switched into testifying against him, and also the just the really complete mismanagement by the police in the evidence collection, just across the board throughout the the documentary that we've seen, the police has have messed up from so many different angles, investigations like questioning, capture of you know, data, evidence. It's just unbelievable how many times they kept doing things wrong. So let's start from impactful moments. Um, We mentioned Mark Furman, so he seems like a good place to start. Um, Obviously, we know that Mark Furman ended up having to come back onto the stand and sort of readdress some issues as if had he ever used the N-word. His credibility was basically demolished by the defense. So in thinking about that, what do you think about... Furman's decision to take the fifth and do you think that 
that really should have impacted what the jurors saw, what they learned from him. Do you think that it should be taken into consideration as far as his credibility? I think every time you plead the fifth, you kind of look guilty. That's the way I look at it anyway, no matter what the case is. Um, Yeah, I I just think they painted him with this brush that made him like such a monster to everyone in the courtroom that it it just, it it tainted the whole thing to me at least. And Mm -hmm. I agree with that about Furman, but... That's, I think, our broader point of this, that it looked like. The, the defense was able to almost paint every person right. that went up on the stand and, and turn their character into a serious question from everyone. And you saw it with Furman. Basically, the whole there was supposedly a long list that pe- of people that were going to testify, and that list shrunk oh, right yeah. after Furman because right. they didn't right. want to have the same thing happen to them. Yep. It was actually after Ship. Ship, yeah. Ship, yes, sorry. Okay. Ship. Yeah. You're right. But similar, definitely, you know, they did a lot of character defamation of... Uh, those who came up to testify. Mark Furman, obviously the biggest point, but Ron Ship certainly received his blunt of damage from the defense. It was like a consistent theme of, of the defense's team. Every single person what, that, they, that was put on the stand, it turned into they were questionable at best. Were you surprised to hear that Mark Furman had a run-in with OJ and Nicole years earlier? And did you think that that was relevant in sort of the defense's theory that, well, he could have set him up? since he was one of the ones that was like, yeah, OJ only lives a short way away. Let's go check him out. I wasn't surprised, basically based on, because we've learned to this point just by watching this series that there's been so many different times the cops have been called. So just by chance, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that anybody may have already had a run-in with OJ. Yeah, I, do think it's a stre- area. I do think it's a stretch for them to say that he set him up, though. I, I think the whole theory of him setting him up is a stretch. You just have to prove, hey, it's, it's possible. Reasonable it's possible. doubt. That's, all, that's all. You don't have to prove that it was a stretch. You just have to prove that it could have happened. That's it. And sadly, I think what we kind of learned was that it, it didn't really matter what they proved. The jurors were kind of... In the bag, in a sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I I do agree with that, 100%. I think so, but at the same time, I guess, you know, maybe we'll get to it later. I also think that, being fair, the defense did what they were supposed to do, and that is poke holes in the prosecution's case. So I do agree with that, but I also do think that no matter what uh, the prosecution put up, I I still think, like, hearing those jurors talk, he probably would have been found not guilty still. No matter what I felt, because yeah. like, it, it became so much more than a trial yeah. about did OJ kill Nicole. It was like that wasn't even really what this was about by the it end. It was could the yeah. LAPD possibly botch evidence, set people up, just, and just in general. And, um, and of course, the prosecution the prosecution did nothing to help their case, right. especially the moment I think that sealed it was when Christopher Darden messed up and basically the, the glove situation. Yeah. That was never going to be a winning move. It seemed like, and so that was clearly. You know, it's just every angle. It was like the defense was great, prosecution was terrible, and everything outside of that was favoring OJ, really, from a jury standpoint. Perfect storm. The most, (laughs) well, I was just going to say the most telling part, I think, from the jury standpoint came from Yolanda Crawford in that they understood the show that the defense was putting on. They were always aware of the show with the tie. I thought that was an Mm -hmm. interesting twist. That was something I didn't know before that they went to that extent with the tribal colored ties. Wow, I didn't know that either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the fact is that they understood that Johnny Cochran and them were trying to go Darden into making the power move. And they understood that, you know what, you fell for it. And even if it, let's say the glove had maybe more questionable, ah, questionable of a fit, they still understood it. And mentally, you know, the 
the way that plays on the mindset of the jury, that was just such a strong move, and they understood it, and I'm glad we had that testimony in the documentary. Um, so kind of going around, thinking about the testimony regarding Nicole's domestic violence accusation, um, well, not accusations, we know yes. what they were, but right. all of that was introduced. Were you kind of surprised that the jury wasn't more swayed by that evidence? I know that um, one juror pointed out that just because someone is abusive doesn't mean that they're a killer. And yeah. while in theory I understand that, it, it's just, do you think that they took that information lighter I guess, for lack of a better term, then maybe they should have. It didn't seem to weigh as much into the case as you would think that it would. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said before, I think that no matter what the prosecution presented, that some of those jury uh, jurors still would have found him not guilty. Absolutely. And there was a couple points I, I, that struck me. First, we saw scenes of Nicole's sister, Denise, crying on the stand and how um, OJ called her a fat pig. And uh, it was just very sad. And then also, I was really disappointed by juror number nine, uh, her name was Cassie Best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She mentioned that she lo- I lose respect for any woman that takes an ass whooping when she doesn't have to. And that just seemed like so not thoughtful. Yeah. I, I mean, if someone's getting beat up, it's not no matter what their decision is. I mean, it's so I mean, it just I felt so wrong yeah, no, hearing that. There's no I empathy think, for abuse yeah. victims basically. But I think with some people and again, I'm not justifying it or advocating it, just trying to, you know, build a bridge to explain. I think they feel like she had the means to, to leave, get away. to, you know, move out of that situation where some women really don't. And for her, I believe that she probably felt like that plays into the gold digger stereotype that the documentary sort of stayed away from, but is the undertone of why people may feel certain things about Nicole, maybe why she stayed, maybe why her family didn't intervene as much. Um, I could be wrong. I'm not justifying it, but I think that that plays a role into why she might have been so unsympathetic. It was That's a, okay. a fair I was just point. Say, I definitely think you're correct, and... I think part of it refers to the climate of the time for whatever reason. We obviously... uh, I don't know if that's a climate of the time. I think that that is something that you would even hear maybe now, depending upon... Well, I think it also... Obviously, the the lack of empathy for Nicole being an abuse victim is there. But I think I go back to what uh, Cassie Bess... I want to make sure I get that. Cassie Bess said later about um, the African-American community looking out for their own at the time, whereas that might be different. And we do know that there was this uh, conflict of interest in that O.J. was with a white woman. And I feel like that also played a part into it on top of the lack of empathy, which I still find... How can you not believe that? But I just... It was a a fact of the case. And I'm also saying this just to put it out there. Like, maybe Cassie was just looking for any excuse to... True. That's a great point. You know, just, you know, she might have had the same mindset as the defense, you know, make Nicole out to be this or that and to justify getting OJ off. I just thought it was so, like, raw and cold, I felt, for her. And she didn't care either. Like, she she just had a... And she even, like, shrugged her shoulders. Yeah, she kept it moving. Yeah. I mean, and I can't... Because I kind of can get, like that perspective but it just seems so like in this situation so awful right I, <laughs> just like even if she she could have the means to get out Nicole but she's still getting her ass kicked oh, and so that just seems so raw to be like I don't care like she just got murdered and her head is basically chopped off it just it was crazy it's so real so um we obviously know the defense um, took great pains to take everyone down, as we've said, that was involved with the prosecution's case from every level, from DNA, 
credibility different times. Um, I thought it was pretty revealing that OJ's agent revealed how OJ generated money during that time period <laughs> to pay for his defense. They estimated that his defense cost $50,000 a day. I know we were quickly trying to do the math. The um, case was 266 days. So that's a lot of money. <laughs> Not even going to try to count that really quickly. But um, $3 million is what OJ raised while in jail signing autographs. And I know that there was mention of Ron Goldman and his family how unethical it was and they had a problem with it do you have a problem with OJ while he is on trial not convicted generating income to pay for his defense I don't have a problem with it um I could I could see where you know Ron's coming from, his family's coming from but I mean he's not convicted yet he has every right to make money any way he can I mean don't get me wrong I'm not <laughs> pulling for OJ or anything yeah. like that but I mean, I mean yeah it's uh, his right. <laughs> we got to protect the rights of the people even if, if, uh, if we don't like it. I'll say it in the opposite way. I do have a problem with it. That doesn't mean he committed a crime. I think I, that's the only way for me to put it. It's an interesting take. I actually don't have a problem with him profiting off of his own celebrity. If people will pay for it, it it's capitalism. It right. doesn't matter where he is. He's allowed to. He's not breaking the law by signing anything. Uh, even if he was con- convicted and he's still signing stuff, I don't have any problem with him making money. Uh, I mean, it sort of was like the people started to finance his defense in a sense. By yeah. But the thing I found most interesting about him signing stuff in jail was the way they did it. How they took the the sleeve or the number, just decal, and he would just sign that, and then they would bring that and press that onto a jersey as opposed to signing an actual jersey. Yeah. And the way that the football, like he just signed Hell. one. I thought that was really interesting, and like that goes to show you the the detail that the director and producer Ezra did for this documentary that made it so good. Like that little detail was so minute and and detailed, but interesting. Um. So. While we're on the subject of that, let's talk about the Goldman family for a bit. This episode featured, four and five actually, featured Ron Goldman quite a bit. And his pain was palpable even all of these years later. Do you feel like, I know that Ron was often talked about as the forgotten victim in all of this. And um, his father and family for years and years, as we'll see later, you know, stayed right there and involved even later on with the printing of a book that we'll talk Mm -hmm. about. Do you think that um, their involvement helped keep the prosecution honest? I I wonder, just because I know that they were very vocal and very upfront, were kind of forgotten and and except on the back end. And I just wonder, do you think that the jury even thought about Ron or the case or them when looking over everything? Because it seems like even in that, no one mentions him really. That's a good question. I believe so, and I think that Yolanda Crawford's statements again that when they did read the verdict, the first person she looked at was Ron's father, Fred Goldman, and said that um, just, yeah, she understood what conclusion the jury had come to, but she never meant to cause that man pain, and I'm certain several other jurors felt the same way, but the facts are the facts. They did not feel that the prosecution did their job to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And um, I think that is a very tragic part of this story because um, obviously there's so many more twists and turns with the Goldmans, but at the end of the day, this is a man who lost his life. And um, I'm glad that the documentary stayed true to the fact that that was a tragedy. Yeah, I, I'm just, I, I'll echo that. I mean, I don't think that, I don't think Ron was really looked at too much by the jury or anyone for that matter. I mean, 
I'm watching the documentary and I'm forgetting about Ron, you know, up until I see his father, I, to be honest with you. I honestly think that it's not even just Ron. I think that Ron was was a secondary figure, but I think that the jury honestly started to forget about Nicole even. Because Good point. It, yeah. it wasn't just Ron. It, it was also, I think, Nicole was being forgotten about. But it was interesting to see Ron's father, Fred, and the figure that he played kind of through the trial and then afterwards. He never really gave up. He was really adamant about bringing justice to yeah. to his son. So um, kind of circling back on the trial, we obviously heard a lot from Marsha Clark and her thoughts on the defense's tactics, what they did to sort of poke holes in the prosecution's case. And she said that she felt that um, the defense sort of attacking the prosecution's case in the manner which they what which they did was almost immoral. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and think about that because I've seen also a lot of people saying how, you know, we even saw it at the end sort of jumping ahead that Bob Shapiro, after the verdict, distanced himself from Johnny Cochran and OJ and the verdict. So did you feel that the defense's handling and how they um, tried the case was immoral, that they didn't play fair? I didn't think so. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, the defense's what they're supposed to do is win the win their defendant, you know, freedom or win the trial. And I think that was their goal. And while you know they played to people's emotions or whatever the situation was, they played it really well. And I think that Marsha Clark could see that. I think she's really good at her job. And I think she kind of understood. She clearly understood what the defense was doing. And I think. That there's a she kind of was conflicted by kind of respecting it, but also it's going against her. And they're such a good team, and they're playing on all these little things that she recognized, but really couldn't do anything to change the the, the idea and, and situation. Yeah, I think Marsha knew that she was behind the eight ball from the beginning. To be honest with you, you know, we go back to the jurors, uh, like we said before, that some of them already seem to have their mind made up. All of, like the racial sentiment that's going on in Los Angeles. I think she knew from the beginning that you know if this trial is about race that she's in trouble, and I think that it frustrated her. And I think it's important to note um, all the aspects of this case, the fact that it's a celebrity, the racial tensions, the fact that this is really the first big case that's being televised on, yeah. you know, news cycle television. The normal rules, as we understand them for the American criminal justice system, didn't apply. That's not to say that the defense, I guess you could, you could argue immoral, but not outside the rules they didn't do anything necessarily that said like well you can't do that when defending a client the fact is it was just a it's a very unique situation yeah. it wouldn't be a textbook case of the criminal justice system but this was the case that they had and they just worked within the rules and part of it was a show for the cameras too and they played to that aspect of it and not even just a racial aspect just in general like he he uh, Mike just mentioned it you know your job as a defense attorney is to defend your client period that's it they didn't do anything true. illegal right so, they didn't do anything illegal um, nope it wasn't right, anything like that it, right. whether or not you agree with them right. i think they were within their their rights to do yes. everything they, if anyone was immoral to me it was some of the jurors Yes. That would be the only right. people in this situation yes. that I could see as being immoral. So let's move ahead to, you know, the jury deliberated for, deliberated for a very short time and came back with their verdict. We heard Yolanda say, I thought about this case every night when I went to bed alone, right. no TV. You know, we understand that they were sequestered, so those type of things. Um so once the verdict was in, we saw the reactions from everywhere across the country. Some of those 
things even looked like a J- Dave Chappelle skit. I mm-hmm. guess there was some guy walking down the street with the green hoodie and he was like, ha, <laughs> yeah. how you like that? Yeah. Just, oh you know, off the horse getting comparison. <laughs> I mean, it was. Yeah. It was kind of like, this can't really be real. Yeah. Is this really happening here? But it yeah. was. Um, so what did you think about the reactions nationwide and just seeing the differences between white just viewers and black viewers and just the amount of emotion and and raw passion that took over after the verdict? I mean, they were preparing for riots out there. Yeah. Well, they said it very bluntly that um, in a lot of ways, it, I guess it depends on where you fell on either side of the fence. I think that um, I understood the celebration, even if I didn't agree with, like, you know, what it meant that, okay, he got away with murder, essentially, but you're still celebrating it because you beat the system. And so that was hard to understand, but... Uh, that's the point I came to and I guess uh, would I agree with it would I want to see that in today's day and age or something similar happen no but at the end of the day I'm not those people who have felt that kind of um, persecution and discrimination so I can't speak to that but watching that that's the conclusion I came to and it was hard to watch in a way because you understood that they were celebrating someone getting away with a crime yeah, I think that this the reactions had nothing to do with the case itself. It really was just, you know, black America and white America reacting to the system that is, you know, our justice system. And like I said before in our last show, it, you know, it, I think that it was about black America finally feeling like, hey, we won. We got one. It right. doesn't matter that it was a murderer. I don't care. You know, Rodney King, will, uh, I have a quote here. He said something... Um, Pay back for what happened for the last 400 years. That's mm-hmm. how they looked at it. And I'm not saying it's right. No, 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 I, I'm no, just saying that's, how, that's it. just what was right. the process. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, one of the central figures in both episodes four and five was Mike Gilbert, OJ's sports agent, who came on board to help him move the memorabilia. And he also had quite a bit of stories to share and, you know, confessions about secret conversations. And in one of those things, he said... Um, that O.J. was preparing for a guilty verdict, and he was telling all of his friends, listen, if I'm found guilty, I never want to see you. I never want to talk to you. You know, just leave me here. And Gilbert also said that O.J. almost confessed to him one night. So as a figure, do you find Mike Gilbert credible, and do you believe some of the stories like that O.J. was going to confess to him and that he didn't want anyone to come see him and just leave him in jails because that sort of seemed odd to me for OJ. You know, the part about no one seeing him in jail didn't seem that odd to me, actually. It seemed like what we've seen from OJ is that he can cut bait real quickly yeah. and move on without any kind of thoughts to, to the otherwise. So I could see that he, you know, if no one, if he lost, that was it. He didn't want any sympathy, anyone coming to talk to him. So I could believe that now. How credible the agent really is, I mean, maybe the stories are a little skewed, but I don't, I thought it was fairly credible. I always, you gotta always take a grain of salt, considering that it's not, you weren't there, so he was credible to a degree, I thought. Because he also was, um, there also was some implication that he might have also been part of taking of OJ's memorabilia and the sell-off that happened later on that we'll get to. But, Mm -hmm. so, OJ comes home, he's, he's acquitted, we see video of him driving all the way home, fans running up to the car, people waiting outside of his house. 
Um, and then there's live video from inside the house that we have never seen. Yeah, it was sort of interesting to me that they were shooting this because I almost feel like they were shooting it with the thought that we're going to air this later. We're going to show this in some sort of capacity. Um, how did you feel about OJ in the house after that? Because I feel like he went back into bad acting OJ mode, so to yeah. speak. Um, just even in his addressing of the TV when Bob Shapiro's interview with Barbara Walters came on, it still didn't seem insincere. I mean, sincere with his actions. It just kind of makes you sick to me. It made me sick, though, because mm-hmm. I, I, listen, I guess we can all agree that he did it. So to see him, like, be so, you know, boisterous at the TV, like, how dare you, and put on this show and put on this act, it, it, it in a way, it's like, this guy's such a psychopath. It, it just, it turned my stomach. I agree. It really did. When I think about it, you know, You've been in jail. You've been in a cell. The only time you're really out is to be in that courtroom. You're put in an official prison van that takes you to the courtroom every day. And the first thing you want to do is throw a party. Like with several... Okay, close friends, yes. But come on, the entire entourage isn't a best friend for life of OJ. You know, he... That seemed like a really OJ thing to me to do, though, just... But I think it showed his insincerity at right. the situation, and that just made him look more and guilty to was, me. It was also said he never wept for Nicole or the well, kids, he, which... Yeah. I think that just goes crazy. to the further point that we, we've talked about, is that I think OJ, you know, if he he moves on quickly. Yeah. There's no living in the past or any of that. It's right to the next thing and, and, and be as boisterous and big. The one thing that made that I caught immediately also that footage is probably being filmed on a big camera this is an iPhone camera time right, right this is, so they had someone seriously filming it it wasn't you know someone just on a camera phone and also he said it, at that time he said his primary goal in life was to pursue the killer but he never did that <laughs> after that so I just thought that that part no matter where you fall on it I think that if his primary he said his primary goal in life was to pursue the killer after as and as time drifts up. on, never was there any pursuit of the killer at any point after that. No. Put it this way: you're crazier than OJ <laughs> if you think the killer was somewhere parting it up in Miami. It's just if if he didn't do it, it was weird to me that he said that that was going to be his primary goal and never did anything to follow up on that. So let's kind of talk about OJ the post-trial years and what he became. OJ was always, for the most part, a very straight-laced guy, at least to the public, a good guy. And after the trial, one, he returned to the black community, I guess the only place that would accept him with open arms. I have to admit, the shot of OJ at the church in the daishiki was (laughs) a lot. Just a lot. When you think about the irony, this is a man who didn't want to acknowledge his blackness, and now his life is such that not only did he have to use his blackness to defend his life, he then has to go to a black church and don a daishiki and find, you know, a home yeah. with these people that he sense. has yeah, shunned for so long because be... his old people wouldn't have him. <laughs> After watching so many hours of this documentary, I would not have believed that unless I'd seen it, that that was the complete 180 he made. I was shocked. But he need, that's that also goes back to something that we've talked about previously, how much attention OJ needs and adoration. Yeah. He doesn't care... Where it comes from, so he had to go there to get it because it wasn't offered. And then he turned into his bad boy image. I guess everybody moves to Miami and becomes a bad boy, right? Apparently, um, yeah. that's what happened. So OJ was partying. Um, the women, 
So what is always interesting to me is sort of jailhouse groupies or murder groupies that seem to attract people more um, once someone has gone through something like that. And then you add into the mix a Hall of Fame football player. Yeah. Let's talk about what was interesting to you about OJ the post years and wait for the reality show and the rap career because we're definitely going to talk <laughs> uh, about that. It's like a midlife crisis. That's what it reminded me of. Wow, that's a great thought. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it just seemed like to me. I was just... Uh, it- I was actually hurt because when I see that and you see, you know, the man mentally, I believe, by that point was already gone. Oh, he snapped. And um, I think the most telling thing, and it came from the agent, okay, we understand OJ didn't care. They all think I'm a killer anyway. You know, fuck it. All right. When they ask him, well, what about your kids? And that didn't phase OJ to stop. I thought that was very... I shook my head at the TV when I heard that. I'm like, how can you do that? He's also getting up there in age. You know, it's it's a lot of things. I think it's a lot of things. You're you're starting to fade out of the spotlight a little bit, even though, you know, what just happened. The last time you were in the spotlight was because of a negative negative thing. That was kind of part of it, too, is that he didn't want to ever get out of the spotlight. He was trying to relive or get back to the moment where he was famous and he was in the spotlight and people loved him like they used to. Right. So, to, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and to that point, because I know we have so much to cover still, I think that it is a cruel irony, um, the Kim Kardashian, that part of the story that the day that so many incidents happened was the same day that Kim announces the reality show that we all know has become what it is. But I think it's very ironic to point out that the OJ case really helped to usher in this TMZ style yeah. of getting yeah. news. And point. ironically, no one profited has profited more from that than the Kardashian family. And you got to think OJ, who loved getting attention, who needed the money, it, it must have really affected him more than people may ever know. Yeah. So um, talking about sort of that time period, we know that the Goldmans and um, the Browns sued OJ in a civil trial, which they won, were awarded $33 million that they never saw it quarter of and later we know that oj wrote a book if i did it to generate money that the um goldman's ended up suing for and getting control over and publishing with the if they're very small <laughs> and the whole thing now i never took a look at that book i don't yeah. know if any of you guys no. did either but one thing that struck mm-hmm. me was that in it it said he said if i did it i had help which has always sort yeah. of been a question. You know what else was interesting? I was looking online as people were saying something, and mm-hmm. um, they were discussing OJ's previous altercations with Nicole, where they were recorded somehow, whether it's nine one one or whatever. And they were like, OJ was very boisterous. How is it that when he, that night when he went to go, whatever happened with Ryan and Nicole, he was stealth silent, deathly silent, no emotions. It's just sort of questions to raise. Like, could he have done it alone at that age with his knees? Arthritis, he was, things of that nature. That's actually a good point. And on the nine one one call, you hear him yelling too, though. Yes. So I he mean, flipped that. He, I, was, he also, I, I mean, I believe he didn't go to kill Ron Goldman. He went and he thought it was going to be one on one with Nicole. He could handle that, and then it just happened that um, you know Ron Goldman was wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. And and basically when they talked about that too, they the way that he had Ron Goldman in that area corner, the, they call it cor- a killing cage. Killing cage. Yes. I mean, it just seemed like it was completely unfair. Unfair. Uh, so he 
it's still bizarre that no one heard and, and all that information. But. So let's um, kind of jump ahead to 2007, Las Vegas. That's when OJ and his boys, his new henchmen, buddies, his writers, um, you know, had armed robbery. They yeah. went to go see this dealer. They had been set up by, what was the guy's name? Tom Riccio? Yes. Who was a slimy character. I personally believe he set OJ up because why are you recording a meeting with a hidden recorder in the room? Because you thought it might go wrong. Just the whole setup seems wrong. It it was Las Vegas, so lots of slimy. (laughs) Anything can happen in Vegas. And and it doesn't stay in Vegas if you're OJ. Apparently not. Do you think that realistically when OJ went there that he went there thinking that they're really going to physically get at this guy and that things could go left that quickly I don't think he was thinking to be honest with you I I don't think OJ (laughs) thinks anything he's spur of the moment whatever he's feeling at that time and if you're in his way he's going to do something about it whether it's for fame whether it's to hurt you for anything and I don't think he was thinking to be honest with you completely agree with that I can't see how you could do any part of that plan with his they weren't even really thugs they yeah. were wanna they weren't even really want to be thugs they were no. one of them frumpy i agree <laughs> with that he was not yeah. he was already gone i think he was feeling himself when he gets to vegas and uh, and so he made the decision that uh, you know I'm feeling myself. We're gonna go handle this. You could see how un kind of planned or out of character. Like it didn't seem like they had their stuff together because the surveillance camera had them walking all around. They couldn't all around <laughs> the hotel, and, just lost. It looked like a comedy. You know, Ocean's Eleven. Chance. Yeah. <laughs> and I tr- truthfully, I think that that situation he never thought was gonna turn out to be the type of things that went against him possibly because yeah. there was no kidnapping. And that type of stuff, maybe by the letter of the law, but I don't think his intention was ever to do any of those right. type of things. Uh, he's just, you know, what they said. You, you, at his point, he should have been a saint. And instead, he was in sketchy situations that led to... I mean, that's just ridiculous. That So, let's go to the conviction. 33 years, which matches the $33 million that Carl Douglas pointed out that they were awarded. The trial happened to send O.J. to jail on the date that O.J. was acquitted, that's you know, crazy. 20 plus years ago. So many coincidences. Do we think, because realistically, if you look at that crime... Not that I don't think that O.J. necessarily did anything wrong, but I don't think that it was 33 years worth of time wrong. I I just don't. I think that everything about that had to do with the get back from the other trial case. Yeah. So in that case, sort of going to what we talk about, is that then, is that something that you would consider improper? Do you consider that unethical? How, how do we look at that whole trial? He got a retroactive sentence. Yeah. <laughs> that is the best. Basically. I love that. I love it. It's so true. When I think about it, I don't think he should have gotten away with it the first time. So I'm glad that they got him on something. That may be immoral, but um, I'm okay with it. I don't know another way to say it. I, uh, I mean, I'm okay with it because I think that he should have been convicted originally. But I don't think that... What he did in Las Vegas deserved any of the type of punishment he got. I mean, they were reading the counts, and it never stopped, and there was so much time that he was due, and all of that, I think, was a lot to just, they wanted to get back at him. You know, that judge was was ready to put him away for everything, and so they really put everything against him, and he couldn't be saved. 
It's true. So let me ask you, is it possible? Because for me, I feel that the 96 trial, the right decision was made, but I still do feel like more than likely OJ did it. Is the, Do you feel like that's an acceptable thought process or do you sort of feel like it kind of has to be one or the other? Because I feel this way even after watching the documentary and looking at the amount of evidence and everything that goes into that. Well, after watching the documentary, I could see why someone would say that there was reasonable doubt. But in my mind, I, I think the evidence was so strong that it, it does make me sick that this guy kind of got away with it. Um, it also kind of makes me sick of like hearing some of those jurors talk. I'm not gonna lie. There was the one juror that yeah. stood up, and he was part with of the Black the, Panther. Yeah, we yeah. should point Panthers. out that there was a Black Panther on yeah. the jury. Just, Once again, how does the prosecution miss that? There was just a there was a lot <laughs> yeah. of things. That's, that's mm-hmm. a yeah, that's a gaff by them. You're right. But I I could see that you could feel that way because the prosecution. While the evidence was overwhelming, they made so many mistakes, and they, yeah. they just they didn't do their job. Even though it, they it was kind of against them, the the jurors and stuff, they just didn't do their job well enough. That I think that left a little opening to say, even though I think he did it, they didn't yeah. do the right things in proving it and whatnot. I just wanted to touch on another parallel that I found. They they showed the demolition of the Rockingham, mm-hmm. the house, and it kind of was like. I felt like that was a good parallel to OJ and his life, sort of. He created this amazing house that he had this, you know, family with, uh, and everybody wanted to be there, and it was beautiful, and it was the place to be, and then by the end, they were breaking it down, Mm -hmm. and it was out, and it was done, and it was like, kind of like OJ. He got to the peak, Mm -hmm. and then he was crushed and taken down. One thing to add, if you're okay with the decision of um, him getting off for the murder trial, then you... It, it's almost like the, the justice system worked in your in your eyes, right? But then the justice system now. Would you say the justice system works for him in the civil trial where he got thirty three years? I'm mean, not the civil trial. The last <laughs> the trial, where he got, trial. Yeah. So if you you kind of have to be consistent, where it's like, all right, well, it worked in this case. Didn't work in this case because he shouldn't got thirty three years. Well, what I what I feel about that is that injustice is injustice, right? So um, I'm not saying that you know I couldn't understand if the jury had found him guilty but I do understand I think it's important to look at the evidence if you want us to follow it if we're supposed to be okay and be to move on from the Latasha Harlins and right. on up to the Trayvon Martins and things of that nature then you have to be okay with a verdict like OJ's okay. and that's sort of where I stand with it I don't agree with any of them and I think that the injustice should be you know fought like those type of things shouldn't really happen yeah. but they do and you sort of have to stand behind our system at some point and try and clean it up if Again, if in those instances we're perfectly fine with it and we said that justice was done, or at least by the legal letter of the law, then we have to be in that case, too. Okay. Um, yeah, I, so. I agree with that in that, you know what, it is true. The O.J. Simpson just, what we've learned as a case throughout all these hours of the documentary is such a unique one. And you could even say a special one-of-a-kind one. And we should expect more out of our justice system. And that's certainly something, you know, not every case is going to be a sensation, uh, sensationalized O.J. Simpson trial. Those that really impact our communities, I really would hope that, you know what, we have justice and we have a fair trial and, you know, that justice is served and rightfully so. And if I can just add my last take overall about O.J. went on the Wendy Williams show. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 
She said that being OJ'd was being charmed, and I completely disagree with that because I think if being if you're gonna call being OJ'd something, it meant being killed. So I didn't like that she okay. said it was being charmed. Uh, that was my take on that. I thought it was cool footage and stuff, but I didn't like that can, being charmed is considered being OJ'd because I just thought it was the wrong connection to make. The OJ effect. Well, go ahead. I was gonna ask a question, so if you wanna, I I just want to say in you know in regards to that. Throughout the documentary, I found a new sympathy and respect for Marsha Clark. You know, I understand, you know, she was the person who was supposed to be brought in to get the job done. And I think you could really tell from her reaction in the film that it probably eats at her a lot. But one of the things I loved is that she never let OJ's stature, any of that, really get to her. And that in that last exchange where she runs into OJ in Vegas at the cafeteria at the courthouse and she's still willing to go, you know... Mr. Simpson, and she hits. Uh, he hits her with that Miss Clark. She was never intimidated by that, and for better or worse, you know, I'm sorry that got away from you. And I found a new respect after that documentary and hearing that testimony. I didn't. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. I didn't, but um, I do. I did respect the work that she put in through the, uh, the trial and some of the things she went through weren't fair. All right. Well, guys, this is it. Oh, man, this I had so much more to say. Right. <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? We are at oh, the man. end. Really quickly, final takes. If you guys have any final takeaways from the documentary. Uh, I just think that, you know, I, I hate to see race relations the, the way they are now in this country, and I feel like the OJ case might have actually f- made things a little harder to understand from white America and black America, you know what I mean? Based on the reactions of the trial and seeing how, you know, I'll just leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I would simply say that it was an amazing documentary, fantastic job by Ezra yes. Edelman, so he should be applauded. Uh, if you guys want to continue talking about it, we can join us on Twitter and in the comments about it, but it was a really well job, uh, well done job by Ezra Edelman. Agreed. So, that's it. Emmy (laughs) so I'm Jill Monroe you can find me on Twitter Instagram Snapchat at Stiletto Jill also also make sure you're following at AfterBuzz leave us five stars if you download this on iTunes five hey guys thank you so much for joining us you can find me on Twitter at Double G on TV thank you for watching I'm Josh Rodriguez. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Josh underscore Rodriguez underscore. Got a lot more to say about this, so hit me up. And I just want to say thank you to you guys. You guys yes. are awesome. Thank you guys thank you. for watching us for the and three thank different you to parts. Michael for rep- <laughs> you know, for yes. putting it out there for this panel. Yes. And then finally, thank you to our engineers at Afterbus yes. and everyone yes. that helped produce this show. My name is Mike. Working Murphy, overtime. And you can catch me on social media at Mike Reps. Thank you. We won't see you next time, but we'll see you in the comments. We'll yes. see you soon. <laughs> Take care. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz, Buzz you later. later.